Father, we praise you that you do speak through your word. And we pray now that you would do that, that you would open our eyes, help us to see what these things here mean for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the issues with being follically challenged on the top of my head is that from time to time people will offer well-meaning advice. I don't know whether any other gentlemen find this. Uh, One such piece of advice came from a barber a couple of years ago before I bought some clippers and stopped wasting money on haircuts. Uh, But this barber was a Turkish barber, and he spent most of the ten minutes it took to cut my hair uh, encouraging me to take up his offer of a hair transplant. We do very good price for you, he said. You pay £1,500. It includes flights. We fly you to Turkey. We pick you up from the airport. We take you to hospital for a hair transplant. We take you back to the airport. You come back. No more baldness. (laughs) Well, what an offer. But it was an offer that I did somehow find necessary to refuse. I guess every day we are bombarded with offers of different kinds. Some amazing, many dubious. Uh, Whether you're looking for a bargain on eBay or you're checking your junk mail folder and you're wondering if your friend really is in trouble on holiday and needs you to transfer money to her bank account. Or you're trying to work out if a job offer you've received with surprisingly little effort is really going to be uh, what it turns out to be, what it claims. But what about an offer, an invitation that goes like this? Stop living for yourself and for your pleasure and comfort in the here and now. Don't set your sights on worldly security and status and privilege and plaudits, but set your sights on eternity. Make living for Jesus in the here and now your number one priority and make it your chief desire to be with him for eternity. That is what you might call the summons of the gospel. It's what, in various ways, Christians are called to do. Now, is that an offer worth considering and taking seriously? We saw last week that Abraham, Abraham as his name was originally, was not given so much of an offer as a command, which is an Old Testament equivalent of that gospel summons. How was he going to respond to what God called him to do? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you turn to page 13 in the Bible, I'm going to first of all remind us of verses 1 to 3, which we looked at last week, and then read verses 4 to 9 of chapter 12. So page 13 in the Bibles, which should be under the chairs you're sitting on or in the pews. Let's look at this. First of all, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So do you see that? That's the gospel summons, the gospel command in an Old Testament way that he's heard, how's he going to respond? 
That's what we're going to see in verses 4 to 9. So let's look at that. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards the Negev. So this summons that he receives leads him to head off on a journey. Now let's just note a few things that we see, first of all, that Moses, who recorded this for us, mentions in these verses before we draw out some points of meaning for us. So verse 4, he, he, he left. He was 75 years old, that we're told. Not an age at which most people would want to begin a new future in a new place involving the promise of a nation descending from them. But he goes, in verse 5, he takes his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all their possessions, and the people they had acquired in Haran. That might strike you as a bit odd. Does that mean a bunch of slaves? Well, it's, it's true that slavery was a thing in the Old Testament, and it shouldn't be compared with the um, 17th and 18th century slave trade that we so easily think of. But, you know, the conditions for slaves were completely different, actually, um, in the ancient world. But actually, the word for acquiring people here is not the word you'd normally use for acquiring slaves. It's much more likely to refer to acquiring followers. So it seems that Abraham is acquiring a following as he begins to share with those around him what God has called him to. You see, he's, a, he's an evangelist from the start. He's been in Haran, and now people are saying, hey, this guy Abraham sounds like he's, he's onto something. We'd better follow him. And they set out from the land of Canaan, uh, for, for the land of Canaan, and they arrive there. And of course, Canaan is uh, roughly what we know today as Israel. And he would have come in from the north, from Haran, which was in modern Turkey, and he comes, verse 6, to Shechem, which the book of Joshua tells us is in the geographical centre of the land. And then verse 8, he heads south, and he looks west to Bethel and east to Ai, and then finally, verse 9, he continues south to the Negev at the southern border of the land. So what's he doing? What's all these place names? What's all that about? Well, he's doing a kind of walkabout tour of the land. That we hear in verse 7, if you look, is the land that God promises to give his offspring. You know, think of a newly elected MP doing a tour of their constituency. You know, visiting north, south, east, west, centre. Or the CEO designate being given a tour of the entire business. It's that kind of, here we are, Abraham. This is, this is where you're going. This is what God is going to give you. So what we've got in these verses is Abraham's response to this gospel summons. 
this command that he receives. And how does he respond? Well, fundamentally, his response can be summed up in one word. Faith. Faith. The the first readers of this, when Moses wrote it, were Israelites. They were poised to enter the promised land. Well, they needed to know as they read this that their faith in God's promises to them as they were about to enter the land and, and, and uh, receive what God was giving to them, they needed to know that their faith in God's promises was not in vain. They needed to trust him. They needed to act on that trust by entering the land. They needed to expect to find deeper reassurance as they did that. And actually it's the same for us as we read this today. See, one of the things that the New Testament tells Christians about Abraham is he, he is an example of what true faith looks like. As we go through all the ups and downs of our lives today in the 21st century, we need to, to know what faith looks like. What does it look like to trust God through all the circumstances we go through? So let's see what we find in these verses about true faith. And you can see on the handouts as we go through this. First of all, true faith believes God's word at face value. True faith believes God's word at face value. So we had verse 1, leave your country, and so on. And then verse 4, the response, so Abraham left, as the Lord had told him. As the Lord had told him. He's he's heard a command, he's heard a, a promise, and he responds by believing that what he has heard is true and acting on it. Now, when I hear the, the invitation to, uh, you know, leave the UK, go to Turkey and have a hair transplant, my response is, no thank you, and perhaps I'll cut my own hair from now on. But, and when many people hear the invitation from Jesus, when they hear him say, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Well, many people say again, no thank you, I'm not going to do that, it's not for me. But Abraham doesn't do that. He believes. He has faith. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's surely because he must believe something about God. Most simply, he believes that he can trust him. He believes that this isn't a scam. That these aren't the words of a fraudster. He may be being asked to give up everything, but it is in response to the most extraordinary promise. And it is worth leaving everything to receive what God is promising. A great nation, a great name, a blessing. And ultimately, he must realise that the God who made the universe simply by speaking, this is a God whose word can be believed and trusted. If God says something will will happen, it will happen. We know that already through Genesis chapters 1 to 11. He he warned that the flood would come. Noah believed and acted on what he heard by building an ark and he was rescued. He made a covenant with Noah where he promised never to flood the earth again in judgment and to uphold and sustain the universe with his creative power. So we know already from Genesis 1 to 11 that God is a God of his word. We know he has the power to create and the power to sustain. And so it's no surprise that when Abraham hears this word from God, he believes God has the power to do what he says. 
He's the creator. Well, why shouldn't he be able to do this? He believes he can trust him. And we're asked to do the same today. You see, faith is not screwing your eyes tight shut and trying to believe in your heart what you know in your head isn't true. That's how, you know, so many people kind of end up thinking what faith is like. But actually it's believing promises on the basis of evidence. And in particular, on the evidence of what you know about the one making the promise. So the question is this, is this a God who can be trusted? If you're not yet sure about Christian things, well, that's the question that you need to grapple with. As we've heard already, many of us are are reading the New Testament in a year this year, and we've just started. Well, why not join us in that? And ask yourself as you read through the New Testament, you know, if it's true that the author of these words is God himself, who has inspired the human authors to write what he wants them to write, well, what kind of God is this? that we read of in the Bible. Can I trust him? And in turn, especially as we read Mark's gospel as as we start with this month, can I trust Jesus who claimed to be God? You know, who is this guy? If he's not God, well, who is he? Is he mad? Is he bad? Or is he God? And if, you're, if you want to think through those things further, join us on this course that we're doing, The World We All Want, which is really designed for those who want to grapple with these questions for the first time and think about what it means to be a Christian. But if that's true for those who are not yet trusting Jesus, it's true for Christians too. Although we might agree we have a basic faith in God, we still struggle to trust him sometimes, especially when life gets difficult. And is that because our view of God sometimes is just simply too small? What does he promise? Well, to take an example at random, Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is for us, even in the midst of our suffering. Suffering is not evidence of his lack of love or even his non-existence. But in loving, fatherly discipline, he uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. And yet when we're faced with tough circumstances like serious illness or job loss or issues in the family or whatever it is, we often throw our hands up in the air and declare that all is lost rather than seeking to trust God. Which is not to say that if if only we had more faith we would be healed or if only we had more faith we'd have the perfect life we've been longing for. It's not to say that but it's to say actually we can trust God through these tough times. Why? Because of who God is. Because of what he's done. And when he says something, he means it. We can believe it at face value. That is the pattern for God's people throughout the Bible. Remember, he, he, he said, you can't use images to worship me. Don't make a statue so that you believe I'm there. Trust my word. And he even discouraged King David from building a temple. And when his son Solomon finally built it, he prayed, you know, can God really dwell in a temple built by human hands? He's the God of the whole universe. He can't possibly be contained and yet go into that temple, go into the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could do, and right at the heart of the temple in the, high, in the Holy of Holies is a box. And open that box and what do you find? What is there? Two tablets inscribed with God's words, with the Ten Commandments. 
See, God can't be reduced to an image. He can't be reduced to a statue. He can't be confined to a place. But he can be found through his word. So if you have God's word, you have access to God himself. God's people, then, are people of his word. They believe and trust his word because it is his word. We wouldn't be bothering to look at the Bible Sunday by Sunday if it was just the word of human beings. But because we believe it comes from the God of the universe and we can trust him. So true faith believes God's word at face value. Then, secondly, true faith acts on God's word sacrificially. Acts on God's word sacrificially. What do we see in these verses? First, verse 4, Abraham leaves. And although he takes his own family unit with him and his nephew, he leaves his father's household behind. He leaves his country. He leaves his people. And in our culture, I guess we generally expect children to leave the family home. We might sort of hope that might happen at some point. It would be no surprise if they ended up in another part of the country or another part of the world. And many of us actually will have done exactly that and left our families and our homelands. You know, I came north of the river. <laughs> and many of you have come a lot further than that. But in that culture, this was a much bigger thing to do, a sacrificial thing. And Abraham was abandoning what he knew to go to what he did not know, all on the basis of a word from God who he had only just got to know. And in that sense, he is also a type, a prefiguring of Jesus. We heard that in the first reading. Did you, do you remember what, he, what Jesus said as people talked about what they meant to follow him? He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. One person commenting on this says, to be God's person is to be a person of the word of no fixed abode. It is God's word that has caused Abraham to give up all he knew, the security and stability that he enjoyed, to become a person of no fixed abode in the present because he has been promised an abode in the future. And so leaving, stepping out, was an expression of that faith. It caused him to be sacrificial. What difference then will it make to us if we trust and believe God's promise that this world is not our home, that there is a better home to come? How will that affect our decisions and our life priorities? It's not that we should necessarily shun finding a home and, and a sense of security in this world. But when your home is a land to come, your real home, your lasting home, is that land to come. Well, your, your, your grip on your earthly security will be looser. And actually, that's just as well, isn't it, when fire or financial crises can take these things from us rather more easily than we might ever admit. Holding what we have loosely and sacrificially leads to a kind of joy that isn't shaken by circumstances. So, so Abraham is, is sacrificial in that he leaves obediently. Uh, but he's also sacrificial in another sense, in that his response uh, to, to what God says to him in verse 7 is sacrificial. Look at that. We're told that at, at that time the, the, the Canaanites were in the land, and, and later in the book of Numbers... 
as the Israelites are preparing to go into the land, they shrink back because the Canaanites are living there and other people are living there. And they say, we can't do this. We can't go. They're scared of them. So, so Abraham's gone to this land and he's been told, despite all these powerful people who live here right now, this land will belong to your offspring. Verse 7. So how does he respond as he hears this promise? Well, he responds with an altar, a sacrifice and worship. Now, an altar is a permanent or at least a semi-permanent structure. He has no other roots yet in Canaan apart from God's promise. And he's responding by saying, Lord, I believe what you're saying. And therefore, I am building this altar in the land that one day my offspring will inhabit. And he does it again in verse 8. Again, do you see this is a concrete, literally sacrificial thing that that, that Abraham is doing as a result of his faith in God's promises? What, what, What would that look like for us? Maybe when a family says that being with God's people matters because we're heading for eternity with them. So it matters more than Sunday sport or Sunday leisure. Or when we say, actually, it matters more than the weekend away or the football match or the concert or whatever it is. It's a sacrifice, isn't it? And people will say, don't be so stupid. No, you just, just go to church next week. But after that happens a few times, you start to realise, well, one of these things has some value in the world, certainly. It's not these things are a waste of time. Great things to do. But actually, being with God's people has value for eternity. And there are other things too. You know, these aren't rules and you have to work out what it looks like in your context. But if, for example, you stick a Bible on your desk at work or you bring your faith into a conversation with a friend who's having a hard time or you choose to give a portion of your hard-earned money away that others in your position would be spending on better holidays and better cars and better houses, well, what are you doing when you do those things? You're building an altar. You're making a concrete expression of the difference it makes when you believe that heaven is your home. An expression of true faith, acting on God's word, sacrificially. If somebody looked at our lives and examined them, and all they could see was absolutely no different from all the other people that we associate with most of the time, apart from maybe what we do for an hour on a Sunday, have we really heard and understood what this gospel summons is calling us to. We understood what true faith looks like. Then thirdly and finally, true faith is reassured by God's word and worships in response. It's reassured by God's word and worships in response. Once Abraham believes God's word and he acts on his faith and he leaves and he goes where God has called him to go, what does he find? Well, he finds, verse 7, further reassurance, again, from God speaking to him. The initial promise was a little vague. You will be a great nation. Well, how's that going to happen? It's hard to see how one man and his barren wife could be a, a great nation without giving birth, but, you know, maybe he meant adoption. Maybe he meant the extended family. Well, no, verse 7 makes it crystal clear. You, Abraham, your offspring. And before it was, go to the land I will show you. And and Abraham has gone, he's set out without knowing where he's going to end up. And now he hears this land, where you are now, you will inherit this land right here. 
So do you see, it took time to find that reassurance, and it came only after he'd started trusting and obeying. And so often that is how it works with God. We obey and we find more intimacy. We find deeper relationship. Deliberate disobedience and knowing half-heartedness will only spoil that intimacy. So if we feel that God is distant, if we feel that God is remote, well, one question to ask us is if there's some obvious sin or pattern of life that is keeping us distant from him. We're not aligning our life with him. Now, it's not the only question we might ask in those circumstances, and there may be other things going on, even while there's no particular conscious and obvious problem in our lives. But, it, you know, if you can identify that, that's the place to start. It's, it's no surprise if we can identify something, that we will feel no assurance or little assurance about our relationship with God. But this is what Jesus meant when he said, to those who have, more will be given. Because he's saying, align your life with the God who made you and saved you. Go his way, and what you'll find is more intimacy with him. And if you want to know where that is, where to find that intimacy, well, it's in his word. Now, Abraham had that sort of direct God speaking to him direct. Actually, Christians today, on the whole, our relationship with God, we hear from him in his word and we speak to him in prayer. That is where we find intimacy. And sometimes when people feel God is far away, well, they think, you know, I'm being a hypocrite if I go to church. I'm being a hypocrite if I open the Bible because I don't really feel, I'm pretending. So I don't really feel this. And then they think, oh, it's better if I stop because at least then I'm not pretending to do something that I, I don't feel is true on the inside. But the thing is, do you know what happens when, when you do that? It only takes you further away. Actually, there can be value in just doing it because you know you ought to. I think we shy away from that sometimes. Thinking, oh, well, you know, I won't open the Bible unless I, unless I really feel like doing that. No, no, just open the Bible and start doing it. Say the prayers that you've been given. That's where liturgy can be really helpful, actually. You know, again, we sort of think, oh, I'm not sure about this. Well, actually, the, the prayers that have been written out for us, say them. And as you say them and say them again, you'll find you start to mean them. You, you, and you will start to own them. And as we continue to soak ourselves in God's word and seek him, we may be surprised that we find him again. Now, of course, it's not great if our feelings aren't matching what we're doing. And if that's sort of happening over a long period of time or consistently in some way, then it's probably a good idea to talk to someone about that. Come and talk to me, come and talk to a small group leader, or you know, whoever might be sensible to, to talk to. But that, that's different, isn't it, from just giving up. Keep living as if this is true and you will find the reassurance that it is in God's word. That's how it was for Abraham. He, he began by believing God's word at face value and he acted sacrificially in response and he found reassurance in deepening relationship with God. And as we said, that relationship goes two ways. We, we hear from God in his words today in the Bible but you see also in verse 8, as he responded to what God has done, he called on the name of the Lord. Called on the name of the Lord. Now it looks as if he's talking about prayer there. Actually the phrase to call upon can also mean to proclaim. 
He proclaimed the name of the Lord, just as God does to Moses in Exodus. It's exactly the same phrasing. And in one sense, prayer and proclamation are the same thing with different audiences, if you think about it. We proclaim God's name to others, but when we pray, we proclaim God's name, who he is and what he's like, back to God. Do you see? Actually, the Psalms are a great model of this. Prayer is, is speaking what God has given to us to say about him so another you know random example psalm 62 my soul finds rest in god alone remember this is words to speak to god my soul finds rest in god alone my salvation comes from him he alone is my rock and my salvation he is my fortress i shall never be shaken and there are 149 other examples of proclaiming what god is like back to god So today we say, we praise you, Father, for for who you are. We praise you for how you have saved us through Jesus. We praise you for the specific things you've done in our lives, that we can can look back and see how you've been at work, if we've been trusting in Jesus for a while. Even through the hard times, even through the really painful and difficult times, we can look back and we we can speak to God about that. We can proclaim the name of the Lord and his faithfulness back to him. So let Abraham be an encouragement to us in our faith to keep seeking deeper intimacy with God and expecting to find it, just as it would have been for Moses' first readers as they sort of wondered, as they were on the point of entering the promised land. Can we trust him? No, we need to, we need to go with this. And when we hear that offer, that, that invitation, that command to stop living for here and now and live instead for there and then to say that this is not my home but that place will be are we going to respond with the same faith in abraham's offspring in jesus by denying ourselves taking up our cross and following him let me pray Father, even as we've been examining what true faith looks like, we praise you that the thing that makes faith into faith is not the faith itself, but its object. These promises that you make. We praise you for Jesus. Praise you that because of who he is and what he's done for us, we can have confidence about the future. We can know that this world is not all there is that we have an eternal home if we're trusting in him. May we therefore hold on to the things of this world loosely. May we therefore live our lives pointing away from ourselves, pointing towards you, so that we may too also draw others to do that too. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.